Hi, I'm Kelly. And I'm Lavinia. Welcome to There She Goes, where women writers share true stories of travel. Their stories, their experiences, told in their own voices. One of the reasons we started this podcast is that the first time Kelly and I met, we told each other travel stories. We were complete strangers, but after spending just a few hours trading stories about experiences in Morocco and South Korea, Italy and Greece, we were friends. Our travel stories connected us. We recognized them as important. And we came away from that first meeting feeling validated and inspired. This is the power of women's personal travel narratives. Consider our storytelling podcast a brand new passport, transporting you every week to a different place for a brief escape, sometimes far away, other times closer to home. Consider our storytellers your brand new travel friends, your sidekicks and sisters and guides. Or even therapists. And consider this your chance to hear some of the stories you may have missed. There She Goes is that simple. No chit-chat, no interviews. Just great storytelling by women travelers. We invite you to settle in for the adventure. Today we travel with Jill Robinson to Switzerland, where she meets a stranger who teaches her that there is more than seeing with the eyes. Jill writes about travel and adventure for National Geographic, Afar, Travel and Leisure, Outside, Food and Wine, Men's Journal, the San Francisco Chronicle, and many more. She's the editor for Guest Life Monterey Bay, and her book, A Hundred Things to Do in San Francisco Before You Die, second edition, was released in 2018. She has won Lowell Thomas, Society of American Travel Writers, and American Society of Journalists and Authors Awards. I'm Jill Robinson, reading my story, The Interpretation of Size. Mountain upon mountain upon mountain, the jagged layers of white overlap and stretch into the distance, just beyond the train platform in Wengen. A train leaves with passengers headed up to the Jungfrau, one of the most famous peaks in Switzerland. After spending time in the Alps, I am waiting for my ride in the other direction to begin my long journey home. Do you know the time? asks a blonde man wearing sunglasses, khaki pants, and a red shirt. A moment ago, when I last glanced away from the snowy Alps, he wasn't here. It's as if he has appeared silently from nowhere. I look above my head at the Swiss railway station clock with its black and white face and red second hand that sweeps to the top. Ten o'clock, I say. Are you sure, he asks. At first, I think he's playing games with me, but he seems to be awaiting my answer without a trace of humor on his face. I check against my watch. Sure, I answer. Even my watch says so. Good, he says. The train will come in four minutes. I wonder why, when there's a clock right here, he asks me for the time. Perhaps it's his way of starting a conversation with a stranger. Before most of my life was filled with travel, when I didn't need to rely on others for directions, cultural insights, or even restaurant recommendations, I kept mostly to myself. Now, anything is a conversation starter, but my first instinct has always been to quietly observe. Is your watch Swiss, he asks? It happens to be. 
A Venga with the red shield and white cross of Switzerland. It is, I reply. He smiles and crow's feet fan out from the edges of his sunglasses. We are very good with time, he says. I like asking visitors because you can take these items, a watch or clock, home. But to experience precise time is a very Swiss thing. I know this because in my travels here, my guide tapped her watch with a finger when I was one minute late. He interrupts my thought, telling me the train is coming. I don't see or hear it. He is not looking at the clock. There is no announcement. But sure enough, seconds later, the train pulls in, a regional green and yellow train that stands out against the snowy Alps like a slash of sunshine. As it comes to a stop, my new acquaintance pulls out a white cane from his bag and unfolds it, and I realize he is blind. Do you mind if I walk with you to the closest door, he asks. My name is Michelle. I hope I didn't make you uncomfortable with all my talk about time. I tell him my name and assure him I'm fine, then take his hand, place it on my elbow, and walk with him up the steps and into the car, where we choose seats together. The track angles down into the valley, between gigantic rock faces and mountain peaks laden with late May snow, to Lauterbrunnen. For the past two days, I've gazed at this valley from my hotel room window in Wangen. If any one place looks like a fairy tale, or at least what I imagine a fairy tale place would look like, this is it. The valley is carpeted with rich emerald grass sprinkled with wildflowers, and the cliffs are beribboned with gushing waterfalls. Out the window, I see a blackbird dive straight down to the valley floor, as if so overcome by the beauty, it had reached its ultimate goal in life. My family once had friends here, says Michelle. We used to visit every summer. A successful day was marked by how many waterfalls we saw while out hiking. But my favorite is Stabak Falls, which plunges from an overhanging rock face right by the town. That's a good goal, I remark. It seems far better than counting passport stamps. How often do you visit now? When I can, he answers, but not as much as I'd like to. See? As we get closer to town, you can spy Stabak. For someone who visits only on occasion, Michelle has a knack for knowing the exact train schedule and when landmarks will come into view. I want to know how long he has been blind, but that seems too personal a question for our short friendship. As if reading my mind, Michelle explains that he became blind as a result of a car accident five years ago. I have been taking this train route for years, he says. I know every turn, every sight, every smell. I know when the train is late and when it's on time, which is almost always. I know when people are happy to see the beautiful views like you and when they are quiet and thinking of something else. How do you know I'm happy to see the landscape, I ask. So far, I have said nothing about the views, even though I'm regretting not spending more time here. You have a quiet way of sighing contentedly, he answers. You don't shift in your seat like someone who is anxious. You must come back this is a special place. His voice drifts off as if, like the blackbird, he's overcome by the scenery, or at least the memory of it. We change trains in Lauterbrunnen, and I resist the desire to veer from my itinerary to walk away from the train station, find a new hotel, and take daily hikes to count the waterfalls. On a new train now, 
heading toward Geneva and away from this fairy tale land and out of the valley. The tracks follow steep fields of purple, gold, and azure wildflowers alongside alpine homes with viridian shutters and perfectly manicured gardens. Tree's new growth stands out against the deeper green of pines, as if someone has selectively turned up the color saturation. When Michel rides through the valley, does he remember this place only with summer colors, or does he occasionally recall the veil of white and gray that seems to enhance light and shadow in winter? I hesitate to describe the scenery to him, thinking the act may be too patronizing. The glare from the train window makes it difficult for me to take photos. Each shot results in a ghostly streak across the image, so I soon give up and put my camera back in my bag. Like Michelle, I'll have to rely on remembrance. The glacial milky blue color of the Weiss Lucina River winds down the valley on its own path from Lauterbrunnen. I look up to catch the last glimpse of the Jungfrau before we leave the valley. Before I can stop it, a sigh escapes my lips. My train companion will know why. I can still see the mountains while we wait for the next train in Interlaken, but now the mountains are farther away, like fading memories. A man taps Michel on the shoulder. I step away to give them some privacy while they exchange greetings in French, but knowing that Michel has my exact same itinerary, I keep an eye on the Swiss railway station clock. The next train comes into view, this one with a red, blue, and yellow color scheme, and like clockwork, the two men hug, wiping their eyes as they part. Michelle and I board, his hand on my elbow. When we're settled into our seats, we each pull lunch items from our bags. My lunch consists of a baguette and burner Alpkäse, a cheese made high in the Alps in summer and one I've craved every day since I first tasted it. Michelle's lunch is a similar picnic, bread, cheese, sausage, and strawberries. We unpack all our food items onto the table in front of us, and at Michelle's suggestion, Arrange them in a clock format with the strawberries at noon, bread at three, cheese at six, and sausage at nine. This way, he can grab what he wants without asking me where things are. That man is someone who helped me after my accident, he says with a mouthful of bread. He used to travel to Geneva often, and I'm friends with his sister. He would visit me to keep me company, bringing small items that make me happy. Cheese, fresh fruit, some music. Is five minutes enough to catch up with someone who's that important, I ask? No, Michelle says. He was out of town when I called to tell him I would be passing through, so I didn't schedule time to stay in Interlaken. He's coming to Geneva soon, so we can catch up then. He just stopped by the station to say hello. The quick exchange between the two of them reminds me of friends who have met me at airports around the world, even when I've had a short layover. To visit each of them is worth my trip back through the long security lines between flights. My connection to a place consists of memories strung together, but the people I meet are the pearls that make the entire experience worthwhile. They seem to be for Michelle, too. As we careen through the Swiss countryside, he describes the landscape perfectly, from river to field to mountainside. Even more so, he recounts the reasons his travels bring him to a destination. Here, it's a friend from university who lived on a goat dairy farm. There, it's an old girlfriend who encouraged him to travel between Geneva and her home village in the Bernese Oberland for the better part of a year. 
He has connected me to this place more than a solo train trip could have done, merely passing through the landscape like turning the pages of a book. What I'll remember about Michel isn't what he looked like, but how he could interpret a sigh, anticipate the arrival of a silent train, leave the Alpkeza cheese for me after learning how much I loved it. I will see Switzerland differently because of him, a better tour guide than I could have asked for. I walk Michel home after we arrive in Geneva. Two blocks from his place, we pass a park, overflowing with roses. He squeezes my elbow and nods in its direction. When you leave me, go sit on a bench over there, he says. Don't rush to your hotel. Spend time and smell the sun on the roses. An hour later, while I am sitting amidst the sun and roses, I spy Michel on a nearby bench. He's facing my direction, but I know he doesn't see me, and I can't possibly sigh that loudly. I pick up a fallen petal, walk over to him, and place it in his hand. Michelle's hand closes over the petal, and he smiles. I'll see you next time, he says, and I know that he will. You've been listening to There She Goes, a storytelling podcast created by two women travelers and recorded from their homes in Alabama and Louisiana. Our theme music is a selection from the song City of Refuge, created and performed by Abigail Washburn. Thanks to Jay Burgess for engineering. Thanks to our amazing writers for proving how essential women's stories are and for bringing their voices to There She Goes. And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming along. We hope you'll be back next week for another story and another stamp in your new passport.